Thanks for checking out the Church RC podcast today. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope that this message encourages you. Now here's Pastor Crystal Sparks. We are ending our Chase the Lion series, and I'm really excited about bringing this word to you. Um, It's more of a teaching word, and I think that you're going to get a lot out of it. I'm really excited because David is one of my favorite people in the Bible. And I know that I say everybody's my favorite, but David really is one of my favorites. I will say this. If I had to, like, only do four things... Well, I guess it would be five. Um, I would do Genesis. Genesis is my first favorite. And then second to Genesis is John. I love the book of John. Third to that is Colossians. And then it's first and second Samuel. Like those are my favorite books of the Bible. If I could just camp there, I would be totally fine all the days of my life. Amen. So we are in second Samuel chapter 23. If you haven't been here for this entire series, be sure, go online, check it out. And Brian has kind of highlighted out uh, different people that David's talking about here. And today we are just going to sum it up in 2 Samuel 23 verse 1. And it says this, now these are the last words of David, David, son of Jesse, and the man who was raised on high, the anointed of God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel says, Can we pray together? Jesus, I just thank you, Father, that this is a God-appointed word at a God-appointed time. Father, I thank you that in this place, that every ear is open and receptive, that every heart is softened for the seed of the word of God. Father, declare in this house that every person will leave changed, that no one will leave the same. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You know, I posted this the other day on um, my social media about 2 Samuel 23, and there are so many layers of good stuff, and I posted on there for you guys to tell me what you thought of 2 Samuel 23, and I posted it to my community group, and I posted it on my Facebook page, and I even put it in my emails that I send out every week, and it was so cool to see everybody's different perspective of 2 Samuel 23, but I think what's interesting here is it's the closing of a period. And it's the end of David's life that we are kind of getting to peer in and David's laying on his deathbed and he's talking to his son, Solomon, and he's giving these final words before he goes into heaven. You know, I don't know what it is as a culture, but we kind of are brought up as a culture to not like endings. We celebrate beginnings, but we really don't celebrate endings. Um, In fact, I don't know where it happened in my life, but I got a deep hatred toward things ending. I don't know what traumatic thing happened. I don't know if you're a psychologist here. Maybe I can lay on your couch and you can counsel me and and figure out where in my psyche it is. But I mean, seriously, like it was so bad that Brian and I, when we would go on vacation and we were leaving the hotel room, I would start to cry on the last day. Cause I'd be like, goodbye hotel. We'll never see you again. And I'd get in the elevator and I'd cry. Cause I'm like, this is the last time we'll be on the elevator at this hotel on this vacation. And I, I mean, I'm so bad. Like when we leave houses and, and move from one house to the next, like I'm bawling, crying, like my kids will never run down these hallways ever again. Like I'll never slam this door in anger ever again. Like <laughs> so dumb, right? I'll never mop these floors ever again. And so there's so many things I have a hard time. Like my 
kids, the saddest day of the year for me is their last day of school. Like most of you are like rejoicing. Most of you cry whenever you're sending your kid to school on the first day of school. That's not hard for me. The first day of school is not hard for me. It's the last day of school that I'm crying because I'm like, you will never be a sixth grader ever again. Like this is the last time for me to pick you up as a sixth grader. Like what happened to this life? It's so emotionally traumatic to me. But then there's other things that, although I hate endings, there's other things that can't end soon enough. Come on. Have you ever been in a church service where you thought, Lord, will this just end? Come on, somebody. Have you ever been in a movie that you just prayed through till the end? You're like, is the movie over yet? Like we've been in here for two hours, which side note, why do they make movies so long these days? I mean, it's ridiculous. I'm like ADD all over the place, like ready to go. I wish my kids were still young that I had to go take them out for a little while. But anyways, but we're, we're trained to almost hate endings and love beginnings, but really, truly God is the opposite. In Ecclesiastes, let's put that up on the screen for me. Ecclesiastes says this, it says the end of a thing is better than its beginning. Ecclesiastes 7, 8, the Lord declares that the end of a thing is better than its beginning. And I believe that if we live our lives right and we live our lives the way that God intends us to live our life, that we'll be able to reach the end of it and declare the end of it is better than its beginning. That we don't have to look back to see the good old days, but we can look ahead knowing the Bible says the steps of the righteous grow brighter and brighter each day. The song we just sang that we go from glory to glory. Another part of the scripture says we go from faith to faith. So, but I think a lot of times we see our life as like, we start out at the top of the roller coaster and then it's all downhill from there. And really with the Lord, it shouldn't be that way. It should be a continual ascent, a continual uphill, a continual shining and looking forward to the very end. Uh, Napoleon, his sister, uh, Alice said this, nothing is as certain as death and taxes. I love that. (laughs) Death and taxes are guaranteed in our lifetime. But here David is, and he's ending, and he's telling his son final words. And final words are important because they're kind of like the definition of your life. I'm, I'm kind of weird. Again, I'm sentimental about endings. So whenever we go places, I love to go to cemeteries. Does anybody else love going to cemeteries? Yes, I knew you. I knew you would. I knew y'all. I see you, my weird friends. So whenever I go places, I'm like, where's the oldest cemetery? Take me there. I want to read all the tombstones. I want to read them. I love seeing when all the families all together. I'm like, oh, they're all here together. It's so sweet. Like I love cemeteries, but really, if you will, when you read through the Bible and you see somebody's final words, it's almost as though they're like, these are the words I want written on my tombstone. These are the words that when people remember my life, I want them to remember this. Now we all know the famous scripture in Joshua 24, 15, uh, choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's Joshua's final remarks before he passed away. Those were his final words. And isn't it interesting that we put it on plaques and hang it over our doorways? And really what you're doing is hanging up what would have been on his tombstone. Those were his final words. That's what he wanted to be remembered in his life. Uh, Peter 
used his final words as charging the people to remember what was told to them. In 2 Peter chapter uh, 1, verse 15, he says, remember all the stories I've told to you. So in other words, he's like, hey, just keep close to you all the teachings that I've told you about Jesus. Paul said this, and we quote this all the time. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. So his final words is saying, you know what? I gave it all I had. And I, well, I went out swinging. I gave it everything I had. So here's David, King David, the great King David. And I'll say he's so much more than the shepherd boy that fought Goliath. I mean, this is the man who reigned over Israel and just did amazing things. And I love the life of David. And here he is in these final tender moments with his son, Solomon. And we're getting to peer in to see what is it is he's going to say? Because think about this. Solomon is the one who would later go on and write the book of Proverbs. He wrote Song of Songs. And the Bible says, that he was the most wise of all the men who lived. I mean, he was just a really great man. And here this father is giving his final remarks. And you wonder what he would say. I mean, he's seen God do so many amazing things. And what's interesting here is he uses his final moments to talk about his team. He uses his final breaths to talk about how awesome his team was. He didn't use his final breath to say, oh man, son, you know that time I stood before Goliath, let me tell you what I was thinking. He wasn't saying, hey son, let me tell you about my father, Jesse, who rejected me and didn't even count me worthy to bring me in. He never believed in me. My brothers who constantly dismissed me as the next king. He said, no son, I wanna tell you about how awesome my team was. Because he knew this, that if Solomon was going to accomplish great things, he had to surround himself with great people. You want to talk about the plug for the first community group is right here in 2 Samuel 23. He's letting him know the strength of the whole will only be as strong as the parts that you're a part of. And if you want to reign in a, in a strong, good way, you've got to surround yourself with great people. You know, the Bible goes on to tell us that Solomon didn't abide to his father's words. And really, when you look to it, it was prophetic in nature because David knew that Solomon was going to have to make a choice. And Solomon didn't serve the Lord all the days of his life. His end, his end days, he, didn't, he turned away from God. A lot of it was because he surrounded himself with people who were wicked and they didn't love God. It was almost David here, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, was speaking a message to his son. Be careful who you surround yourself with. And I would say the same is true for us, that if you want to start running further and you want to start running stronger, who are you running with? Who are you surrounding yourself with? Think about this. There was a peach tree farmer, a friend of mine told me the story, and I thought this was so interesting. There was a peach tree farmer, and he had a huge plantation. Um, he had the best peach trees. And so what was interesting is when it came time for harvest season, the family would go out and pick the choice peaches before the harvesters would come. And then they would eat those peaches. They would turn them into uh, jams, jellies, can them, um, and put them away. But what was interesting is out of those choice peaches, they kept the best seeds. They kept their seeds and they put them into a fireproof safe because they knew that if fire came and destroyed the whole plantation and everything was taken, if they had the seed, they would be able to survive. And I would almost say that it was so David is planting a seed into Solomon and he's letting him know if you'll just keep this seed pure. You, everything else will be okay. If you'll just keep this part good, everything else will be okay. I love the way David describes his life in Second Samuel 23, verse five. I think it's best in the message. It says, God has guaranteed his covenant with me, spelled it out plainly and kept every promise, my entire salvation, my every desire. 
I love that so much. Isn't that just so good? And the thing that's interesting is you don't know if a guarantee is good until you have to make a return on it, right? And I think it's interesting because David's looking back over his life and he's saying, God has guaranteed his covenant. You know why he says he, God guaranteed it? It's because David is the one who murdered Uriah. David is the one who slept with Bathsheba. David is the one that his own son Absalom betrayed him and tried to overthrow the kingdom. And when David looks back over his life, he doesn't talk about the pain. He doesn't talk about the mistakes. He doesn't talk about the heartache. He says that God guaranteed his covenant with me. And I know it's a guarantee that's good because I did everything to break the covenant and God still held the covenant. So good. So he's letting his son know in those moments, don't ever think your failure is gonna stop God's guarantee of his covenant. He's going to show himself faithful, even when you prove yourself to not be faithful. So good. So I want to talk about, I just want us to kind of paint the common threads of the different men that are described here, because there's lots of men that David uses and, and different stories. And Brian did such a great job highlighting them out one by one. But I was kind of intrigued because as I looked at it, I just kept asking myself, what is the common thing? Because I want you to think about this in second Samuel, uh, first Samuel, 22 verse 2 it says that the men assembled themselves to David and they basically were the dejected rejected ones that came to David while he was not yet king and he's here in the cave and the Bible says there was 400 of them now out of 400 men David only mentions 37 in these closing passages and I think it's interesting because there's a few things number one it makes me question how much of those 400 left him and were there only 37 left at the end of his life, which makes me think that he's letting his son know, don't major on the people who leave your life, major on the people who stay with you. And these were the men who went through hell and back. And I'll just say, side note, your true friends are the ones that come to you and they're with you when you have nothing to offer to them. And here they are. These are the men that came to David when he was hiding from Saul. Saul was trying to kill him, trying to take out his life. Saul was basically like a crazy king and And here these men are, and they give everything to David when he has nothing to give them in return. So I was intrigued, and I was thinking, what is the common thread? The first thing I want you to write down is they were willing to do whatever it took. They were willing to do whatever it took. They slew giants. They defeated enemies uh, at 800 to 1 odds. They jumped into a pit with a lion on a snowy day. I heard somebody preach a really good message about that. And they defended a bean field. Now, I think this is interesting because David takes the time to mention the big things that they did, but he also doesn't rank victories. He says, here's the one who defended a bean field. And then he goes on to the next story that they went. There was the Bible talks us about here where David says, I told them that I was thirsty for a cup of water from Bethlehem. Now to paint this out, Bethlehem was 25 miles away from where they are. So it'd be like me telling you, I'm really thirsty for a cup of water from downtown Dallas. But here's the key is that there's a whole enemy that wants to kill you in downtown Dallas. And you going to downtown Dallas Dallas means you might die. Like it's not good for you. And the Bible tells us that just David saying, I would like a cup of water. They went out, went all the way to get him the cup of water and brought it all the way back. 
What a sweet sacrifice. And in his final moments, he remembers those men that risked everything for a cup of water. And I thought about this, that sometimes in looking into our own lives, we rank our victories. And we kind of look over our life and it's awesome to say, yeah, he jumped in a pit with a lion on a snowy day and he overcome at 801 to odds and he slew a giant. Like, isn't that awesome? But some of us are just called to defend our bean field. And some of us are just called to get somebody a cup of water. And we almost feel like our life is less significant than other people. Because if we'll just all be real honest, we slip into the comparison game really quick. And we look at other people's story and we feel like it discredits our own. And here he is saying that when I look over my life, I cannot say that one person's victory was greater than another. That really, when I think about it all, they're all as great as each other. Because each one was doing what they were called to do. Each one was just willing to give whatever it took to see the accomplished, uh, the mission accomplished. Whatever you are doing right now, just give it heart and soul. Whatever you are called to do, just give it heart and soul. Whatever it is that you're doing, and I know that sometimes it feels insignificant because trust me, whenever Brian and I were going through college, I worked at Sonic. I came home smelling like a corn dog every day. For real. He couldn't keep his hands off me. He just loves corn dogs. What can I say? But seriously, and if you've ever worked in fast food, you know there's no laundry detergent that can get that smell out. Like, it's stuck. It's like it still oozes out of my skin from time to time. But you know what's interesting is I gave it heart and soul when I worked there. And I can say the same way I led working at a burger place is the same way I lead here. And whatever you're doing, just give it heart and soul. And just know this, that at the end of your life, that God is going to remember everything you've done, every sacrifice that you've made. And because just think, getting a cup of water didn't win them some great accolade, but they're remembered forever in the Bible. Isn't that so sweet that we still remember their sacrifice? Sacrifice. The next thing I want you to write down is that they all endured exhaustion. They all endured exhaustion. It's not enough to start well. Anybody can start on January 1st, but do you finish well? When I first started running, um, I started running with a group of people and we met in downtown Roy City and there was a girl there and she was a pace setter. She was a professional pace setter and I got to run with her one time and um, I was just starting out and we're running and she said, okay, well, we're coming into our last half mile. And I was like, great, because I'm done. Like, I'm really done. I'm tired. And she said, no, this is when you push as hard as you can. And I was like, what? She said, true runners don't pull back at the end. True runners run harder at the end than they did at the beginning because you want to run what's called a negative split. And a negative split basically means that your last half mile is completed faster than your first half mile. And she said, so right now you're about to give it everything you have for the next half mile. And she started training me like that. And just training like that made my times go up. My endurance got stronger. And I'll say this, in our lives, it's not that we started well, it's that we finished well. And some of you may be looking, you go, well, I'm in the later seasons of my life. Well, it's time for you to run a negative split. It's time for you to push harder than you've ever pushed. It's time for you to try harder than you've ever tried because I want to come across the finish line like Paul and saying, I've fought the good fight. I finished the course. I didn't kind of take it easy because we have this mentality in our life that we just live for retirement, but you never retire from your cause and you never retire from your purpose. And so we should always be pushing for the next 
mountain and the next victory. The next thing I want you to write down is they, that they all took initiative. They all took initiative. David didn't ask them to do any of the things they did. Benaiah, when he was faced with the lion and with a pit on a snowy day, he could have done whatever he wanted to do. David wasn't there asking him to jump in the pit. In fact, I would just dare to say that the victory was not dependent upon whether or not the lion lived or died. But Benaiah took it upon himself to bring a great victory. And at some point of your life, I think we're so afraid to miss God that we're paralyzed into doing nothing. And at some point in your life, you just got to start moving. You got to start taking initiative. If you feel it in your heart to do it, the moment you feel it in your heart, I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it until you start doing it. The moment you feel it in your heart, that's your go sign from God to do it. And all of these men just took initiative. Nobody told him to stand in a bean field and defend it. Nobody said, hey, will you go into this bean field and just give your life to beans? I don't know that I would give my life to beans. That doesn't seem like worth it. But to him, he was so married to the cause that he didn't need something somebody to tell him what to do. He knew what was right. You know in your heart what you're supposed to be doing in this next season. And you're waiting for three confirmations and a song and a scripture to show up on the right place to be a sign. No, just take initiative and do what God's called you to do. I love this quote by Stephen King. It says, amateurs sit and wait for inspiration. The rest of us get up and go to work. Isn't that so good? I think he's written a few uh, best-selling books. I think he's worthy to at least listen to him a little bit. The next thing I want you to write down is several of them were attacked in harvest time. When it was in the bean field in verse 11 in 2 Samuel 23, it says the Philistines were gathered at Lai on a piece of ground full of lentils. And then if you flip the page, if you read the Amplified, you flip the page. And in verse 13, it says, and three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time to David. Isn't it interesting that the enemy always will attack in your harvest time? The enemy's always gonna attack where there's spoil. And the announcement that next, that promotion is around the corner is an attack on your life. Maybe you might be getting attacked mentally. Maybe it's your marriage being attacked. Maybe it feels like your kids, like all hell is breaking loose in your house. Maybe it feels like your business is being attacked. But I will tell you that the attack is the announcement that your next season is upon you. So don't be discouraged at the attack. Be encouraged that the enemy sees harvest all around you. And it's your choice to fight for it because every single one of these men, when the battle came, they had a choice. They could stay and fight or they can turn and run. And a lot of times we'll say, well, I thought it was God, but then things started getting really hard. So I guess it wasn't God. No, the fact that things got hard tells me that you are doing the right thing. That's why it's so hard to get to church on a Sunday morning. That's why, can I just be completely candid? That's why you got offended at somebody at church. Because the enemy doesn't want you to come here and hear the word. So he'll let you get offended. And well, she didn't smile at me. He wasn't very nice to me. And, and you get offended. And next thing, what do you do? Well, I guess we won't go to church. I, I, I don't really like the way they preach that message. I don't really like the way that kid's worker looked at my kid. Come on. Because the enemy always attacks when it's harvest season. And you've got to get to a place in your life where you recognize the attack and say, oh, I must be doing something right. Not what am I doing wrong? All of them knew that the fact that the enemy was coming in, that was their announcement that it was harvest time. And the next thing I want you to write down is they all serve the Lord. They all serve the Lord. 
David ties this together to his son Solomon and letting him see all of them served the Lord. And he tells the story and he says, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. A lot of times whenever good things happen, can I just be 100% candid with you? We are so married to um, methods and we're drawn to want to figure out how did I do that good? That when something goes right in our life, we try to remember what did I do to make that happen? What did I do to, is it, was it the shoes I was wearing? Was it the time of day that I was praying? Was it the room I was praying in? Come on, we get really weird. And I love that David lets him know here, it was the Lord that brought her out the great victory. Yes, they were brave, but they couldn't have defeated a lion without the Lord. And yes, he stood when nobody else stood with him, but it was the Lord that brought about the great victory that day. He's letting his son know in every victory of your life, before you look inward and say, well, how am I good? You need to look up and say, how is God good? You need to look up and say, God, it's you. It's not me. Because how often do we do that? How often do we get super spiritual and, and we say, well, these bad things are happening in my life because I'm not doing X, Y, and Z. Baby, you didn't qualify the miracle. God qualifies the miracle. And you got to get to a place where you go, God, you're the one that brought about the victory that day. The next thing I think is interesting in all of these is that they all stood alone. They all stood alone. Isn't it amazing the people that are like your rider dies, like they're there with you until all hell starts breaking loose. Because it's interesting that every single one of these guys go in with a troop and it's like at the end, they're all by themselves. It's interesting to me that it's like, and then what's really funny is on a few of them, after the Lord brings a great victory, all the guys come back, all the homeboys come back and they're plundering. They're getting all this stuff. Isn't it amazing? Nobody wants to be with you when you're on food stamps. When you're living in the ghetto, nobody wants to be with you. But all of a sudden you get a nice house. You start getting family members you didn't even know. Everybody sending you wedding invitations. Come on, somebody. Graduation announcements. Your mailbox full. Where were you when I was on food stamps? You weren't around nowhere. When I was eating government cheese. Come on, somebody. Y'all, for real, I ate so much government cheese in my lifetime. It's sad as a kid. We ate a lot of that stuff. I ate so much beans. I still can't make beans for my kids. But it's interesting to me that they all still fought alone, which tells me this. Sometimes before a great victory, you're going to feel really alone. You're going to feel like nobody's in it with you. And I'll say this. I think that the enemy wants us to feel alone because this is why you can quit and nobody will know. That's why the greatest and the loudest whispers come to you when you're lying in bed alone at night when you're in your car by yourself, because you're not thinking thoughts of quit when you're in a room like this. It's when you get alone and all of a sudden everything gets quiet and the enemy comes in and goes, you can just do it and nobody will know. You can, you can just send that text and, and nobody will know. Why? Because the enemy always wants us to isolate from other people. And sometimes he's going to make people leave your life to test you. Think about Jesus. Whenever he went up into the wilderness to be tested by the devil, he wasn't there with the disciples. He was there alone. And the enemy is always going to come when you begin to isolate. And I'll just say this, that if you're in a season where you feel isolated, be careful because the enemy's doing that to try to get you alone. So he can try to get you to tap out on what's been promised to you. What's interesting in all of these is that this was all done in the old Testament 
And this is where they didn't even have the power of the Holy Spirit residing on the inside of them. So if they did this under a lesser covenant, how much more should we be doing with a greater covenant, the new covenant with the Holy Spirit on the inside of us? Jesus said greater works than these. I think these fall under that, which tells me no matter the battle you're facing today, God is able to bring about a great victory in your life. A final thing, and we'll move quickly because time is eluding us. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 39, you know, I told you about David murdering a guy. The guy's name was Uriah. He sent him to the front battle lines, and there he, he died in battle. He had slept with Bathsheba, his wife, and had gotten her pregnant. And in an attempt to cover it up, he sent him to the front lines. And Uriah died doing the last command that David had told him to do. And I think it's so sweet because the last line of David's last words, he mentions Uriah, the Hittite. These were 37 men in all. And I think what's sweet is that he's letting his son know, even when you've done things wrong, it's still your job to make things right. And then at the end of his life, he's letting his son know, never be so prideful that you can't say, I was wrong. And here at the end of his life, he names Uriah as a great man. He was a good man. Can I pray with you all today? Jesus, we're just so thankful, Father, for your word. And Lord, we're so thankful that in your word is just so many revelations of truth. And Father, I thank you that in this, that God, I thank you that you're making us to be more like David. Lord, where we have a heart for others, we have a heart for the relationships that we have. And God, I thank you that there's so many people here in this room today, here in this message, and they're all in different seasons of their life. And some of them are in that season of feeling isolated and alone. And God, I thank you that you're near to the brokenhearted. And God, I thank you that you're calling them to be a part of something greater. And that, Father, I thank you that for every person here, that God, you are causing us to be bold. You're causing us to be courageous that God, we're gonna take the victories that you've called us to take. And we're not gonna have to do it by ourselves, but God, you're gonna do it. let us do it with a team of people around us. Lord, we thank you, Father, for all that you're doing in our lives. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Hey, if you're here in the sound of my voice and you say, Crystal, I don't know Crystal. I don't know Crystal. <laughs> I don't know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. You've never asked him into your life. Maybe you're here in this place and you prayed that prayer before, but you've made some mistakes and you've fallen away. Friend, let me just tell you that Jesus is radically... At The Church RC, we aim to help you encounter Jesus. If you want to further connect with us, you can find us online at thechurchrc.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Church RC. If you have a story to share about how God is moving in your life, you can email us at amen at thechurchrc.com.